copies. If you have your Bibles, take them and open them to Mark chapter 9. This is one of the most striking events in all of Scripture. The transfiguration of Christ. Mark chapter 9, verse 1, let's read. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. After it has come with power, and after six days Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured. That word means transformed, visibly transformed. He was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant. (laughs) Intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Do you feel that way this morning? It is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Lord, we ask your blessing upon the reading of your word. Come. We don't need to ask you to come. You are here but by the grace of your Spirit, illumine our hearts to the truth of this text. Lord, show us a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ. We ask it for His sake. Amen. You may be seated.
being, uh, being, being born and raised in the Carolinas, my family had the privilege of easy access to the beach and the mountains. But from a very early age, I always preferred the mountains. Now listen, I, I mean real mountains. I, I'm not talking about those babies called Poconos in that state to our west. I'm talking about the real thing. After I graduated college and moved to Wyoming, my perception of the mountains was, shall we say, adjusted. Because there is something almost otherworldly about the rugged, snow-capped peaks along the Front Range in Colorado in Wyoming, at elevations where the air is thin. There are no city lights. There's no noise from the bustling world below, where the night sky is inky black. A canvas blanketed with stars glistening like diamonds. Is it any wonder then, friends, that all throughout Scripture... God frequently has met with man on the mountains. Which is exactly where we find ourselves in this passage today. What Mark calls in verse 2, a high mountain. This is probably Mount Hermon. Not far from the region of Caesarea Philippi, where Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. But even though Peter and the disciples were beginning to understand just who Jesus was as the Messiah, as the divine Son, they really still had, they had no real sense of His glory. And you know, we are the same way today, aren't we? Yes, we confess the Lord Jesus. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We believe it. We'll stake our lives on it. But too often we are unmoved by that truth. We are unmoved by His glory. It doesn't move our affections like it should. And How desperately you and I here at the 21st century in Pennsville, New Jersey need to journey up this mountain with Jesus through the words of this text and just get a glimpse of His true greatness so that we would once again be a people who live with an all-consuming passion for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so as we consider these verses, I want, I want to point out three ways, three just three ideas, three main headings, three points whatever you want to call them, three ways that the glory of the transfigured Christ should affect us, how it should affect, how it should impact our lives today. In other words, this text makes a difference when we leave this building. The first is that the transfiguration assures us of future glory. It it assures us of future glory. Verse 1, and 
he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, maybe you're puzzled upon reading that verse. This verse has puzzled Christians for centuries because obviously... Jesus did not return in the glory of His kingdom before His disciples died, did He? In fact, we're still waiting today. Skeptics often, they'll point to this verse as proof of failed prophecy, proof of error in the Bible. But Jesus did not mean that the disciples would see His return in their lifetime. All of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they record the transfiguration of Christ. And all of them have Jesus saying this immediately before the transfiguration event. The clear implication being that the transfiguration itself was a display of the Son of Man coming in the glory of His kingdom, coming in power. Because that's exactly what it was. Look at verse 2 in your Bibles. After six days, Jesus took with Him Peter, James, and John. These were His three inner circle disciples. He led them upon a high mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured. He was visibly transformed before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them, to who? Peter, James, and John, Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So then, Peter, James, and John were the ones Jesus was talking about in verse 1 when He said, Some standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. See, all the other disciples died without seeing the transfigured Christ standing and talking with Moses and Elijah, almost as if heaven had touched earth. Christ being visibly transformed. His appearance radiant and bright, unlike anything this earth had ever seen. So verse 1 was fulfilled then in verse 2. But you know, Mark doesn't tell us whether it was day or night, does he? He doesn't give us any indication. But Luke says that Jesus took these three disciples up on the mountain to pray. And most of the time in the New Testament, we find Jesus praying when? At night. Luke also tells us that Peter, James, and John were, quote, this is Luke 9.32, they were heavy with sleep. So it is very likely that the transfiguration that we're, we read today in Mark 9 occurred at some point during the darkness of the night. Even further enhancing the blazing brightness 
of Christ's appearance. Matthew 17, 2 says that His face shone like the sun. You ever looked at the sun on a bright day? You can't, can you? His face shone like the sun, Matthew says. His clothes became white as light. And so now standing next to this brilliant Jesus was Moses and Elijah, whose presence at the transfiguration was not inconsequential. It signaled that Christ was the fulfillment of everything that they typify as the law, Moses, and Elijah, the prophets. You see, Jesus is the greater Moses, the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is the greater Elijah, the one whom the prophets foretold would come. This is all about Christ here. Luke 9.31 says that they appeared, Moses and Elijah, they appeared in glory. We can't even imagine what that means. They appeared in glory and spoke of His departure, which He was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Friends, imagine that conversation. Moses and Elijah standing, talking with Jesus. They talked of his imminent death and resurrection as the apex of God's plan to redeem a fallen sinful people for himself and inaugurate his kingdom on the earth. And friends, the transfiguration of Jesus Christ was a preview, a glimpse. The windows of heaven were briefly opened And we saw the kingdom in its fullness here in this text. We see it in this text. So for us then, the transfiguration is a visible promise of future glory. A visible promise of future glory. What Peter, James, and John experienced on that mountain by sight, we experience not on the mountain, but in the valley by faith. And you know, friends, sometimes it can be hard to live in the valley, can it? It can be hard to live by faith. We get weary of the valley. And so look to this passage this morning, brothers and sisters, and draw strength because as Christ is here, we will be one Day. John, who was here, he was one of the three. He saw the transfigured Christ. He says it this way in 1 John 3 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Because we shall see Him as He is. The transfiguration is a glimpse of this moment. What theologians have called for centuries the beatific vision. That moment 
when we put our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ in glory for the very first time. What's the old hymn say? Oh, I want to see Him. And look upon His face. And there to sing forever of His saving grace. It is the vision of Christ that will consume our lowly bodies so that we would be transformed to be like Him. This is the assurance, brothers and sisters, of our future glory. To take hope in this this morning. Secondly, in this passage, we see that the transfiguration calls us to worship and obedience. It calls us to worship and obedience. Look at verse number 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, the word rabbi, of course, means teacher. In particular, it means my teacher. My teacher. It is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then Mark says in verse 6, For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Several years ago, 14 years ago, I think, in fact, I, I got to visit the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. It's called Yad Vashem. And there is a large, open, sort of circular room there called the Hall of Names. You walk out on this platform, and above and beneath you, there are thousands of books on shelves containing the names of the six million Jews murdered by Hitler during the Holocaust. And when I walked into the Hall of Names, I knew there was something solemn, something sacred about that place, something different about it. <laughs> no one was talking Filled with people. You could hear a pin drop. No one was laughing. Just silence and awe. It would have been unthinkable for someone to come in there and start talking or laughing or asking questions. But you know, that's kind of what happened here with Peter <laughs> at the transfiguration. Think of it. The veil of Christ's humanity was briefly lifted and the divine glory of the eternal Son of God was blazing in radiant brightness. This was a moment to just stand in awe at the transcendent glory of Christ. And what does Peter do? He starts talking about building tents and tabernacles. Maybe he thought that Moses and Elijah had come to stay. We don't know why he started saying what he did. But you get the sense from the text that it was inappropriate. It was irrelevant what Peter said. Mark just says in verse 6 that he was, Peter was terrified. He didn't know what to say. Matthew 17.6 says that all three disciples, Peter, James, and John, they all three fell on their faces and were terrified. Friends, when's the last time you were terrified in coming to church? 
This was the terror of majesty. That's what this was. This was an Ecclesiastes 5-2 moment where the author, probably Solomon, he says this, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart hasty be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. That's what this moment was here on this mountain. The transfiguration shows us that the only appropriate response to the glory of Christ is worship. Worship. This is all about His divinity. You remember Mark, Mark's driving sort of theme. All, look, if, if there is a spine in Mark's gospel, it is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Everything else that he says is building on that theme. This is about Jesus being divine and us responding appropriately. And you know, we experience something of this collision between heaven and earth every Lord's Day when we gather for worship, don't we? See, church is not something we just do. This is the one place, the one moment, every single week, God has built it into the rhythm of our very existence that the lines between heaven and and earth become a little blurry and we join our voices with myriads of angels who forever sing, holy, holy, holy. That's what this is. That's why it's okay for you to tremble in the presence of God. It's okay for tears to stream down your face. It's not okay for us to stand here as dead pieces of wood or stones in the presence of the high king of the universe. This is the place where heaven collides with earth every single week of our lives. That's why there's a, there's a sign over those sanctuary doors that says, Enter with reverence. Not that there's anything sacred or special about this room. This is four walls and a roof. But there is something special and sacred about who we meet in this room. And friends, this is why. If we're always in a hurry to get out of here on Sunday mornings, to get on with our day, if we get antsy when things go a little bit long, that makes me wonder if we truly appreciate the gravitas of just whose presence we're really in. This isn't a show. We are gathering in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, we need to feel, once again, the terror of majesty in the church. We need to feel the weight of glory. So we're not falling asleep 
bored thinking about what we're going to eat or where we're going to eat after church. This is not about a preacher, about a song leader, about anything else. This is about Jesus Christ. (laughs) And we have gathered here to give Him the worship that He rightly deserves. We haven't come here just to check off our Christian duty for the week. If you've done that, that's why you are here this morning, friends. You, you probably do not know Jesus Christ. You and I have gathered here in the terror of majesty. God is thrice holy. His Son is thrice holy. His Spirit is thrice holy. (laughs) And so the transfiguration then calls us to worship, but friends, it also calls us to obedience. Look at verse number 7. A cloud overshadowed them. I don't have time to go in. We should be connecting the dots all the way back to Exodus, all the way back to Genesis, This is redemptive history unfolding before our very eyes in Mark 9. I don't have the time. A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. This cloud was the manifest presence of God the Father. same cloud that led the children of Israel in the Exodus. (laughs) The same cloud that settled over the Holy of Holies. This was God the Father affirming the divine sonship and the messianic identity of Jesus. And He added this imperative to the disciples. He said, listen to Him. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. To listen to Christ is to obey Christ. Every parent in here knows that, right? And for us, that means obedience to His Word. You can't separate Christ from His Word, friends, which is what seems to be the growing trend in our day. We want to separate Jesus from His Word as if... I don't know. There's something different about His Word from His character and His person. But worship and obedience, friends, they are the essence of the Christian life. Because worship is obedience. Obedience is worship. And Jesus Christ, because He is the divine Son is the right object of both. He deserves our worship. He deserves our obedience. And with the the Father's affirmation of the Son and the imperative to the disciples, listen to Him, with those words, the transfiguration ends. And then verse 8 says this, Suddenly, looking around, They saw 
no one with them but Jesus only. I want us to camp here for a moment and consider those two words, Jesus only. The great 19th century Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon, who once preached an entire sermon on those two words, says, This was the last sight the disciples had upon the mountain. And it seems to me to have been the best. They saw Jesus only. After the dazzling brilliance of the Lord's transformation was over, after the thrill of seeing Moses and Elijah had passed, after the terror of Christ's transfigured majesty had subsided, Peter, James, and John were left with Jesus only. And there is a convicting truth here for us, because friends, I wonder, when all the excitement of the mountaintops that we've been on, whatever mountain, whatever spiritual mountaintop we've, we've been on, when all that excitement has faded, is it enough that we are left with Jesus only? Yes, it is awesome to experience the sweet presence of Christ in tangible ways that move our emotions. The friends, that buzz, right? If I can call it that, that buzz doesn't last forever, does it? Is it enough that when all of that is faded, we are left with Jesus only? And you know, I, I know that many of you may not even remember the last time you were on a spiritual mountaintop. Because you carry in here every week burdens, needs, and worries. You've been in the valley so long, you, you don't remember the last time you are on the mountain. You may go to bed tonight with no money in your bank account, but you have Jesus only. You may be married to a spouse who has just told you, I don't love you anymore. But you have Jesus only. You may be in a season of uncertainty and you don't know the, the, the next move to make. But you have Jesus only. You may, friends, you may be going through something that has you feeling isolated, alone, but you have Jesus only. Because no matter our situation, and everybody in here is carrying something different, some of you may be on the mountain right now. I hope, I hope we all are. But if you're in the valley, no matter our situation, when everything else is taken from us, the people that we love the most, our security, our comfort, everything is gone, and we're left with Jesus only, friends, I want to tell you this morning, He is enough for you. He is sufficient for you. So we need to feast on the richness of of Christ here in this text this morning 
as He calls us to worship and obedience long after the mountaintop experience has faded. Lastly, in this passage, we see that the transfiguration reminds us that suffering precedes glory. In verses 9 and 10, on their way down the mountain, Jesus told his three guys, his three disciples, he said, stay quiet about what you've seen until after I've, I've been raised from the dead. And once again, they were confused. We would be too. You see, they knew that the scribes taught that Elijah would precede the Messiah. That's in verse 11. And so they just saw Elijah with Christ. And Peter had just confessed that Jesus was the Christ. He was the Messiah. And so it, it's not making sense to them why Jesus is still talking about His death. Because all the, the pieces seem to be in place for the, the coming of the Messiah. And so in verses 12 and 13, Jesus again corrects them. He shifts their expectation away from this political Messiah to a suffering Messiah. Isaiah knows him as the suffering servant. And Jesus says, yes, you guys are right. The scribes are right. Elijah does come first. In fact, he already has come. And look what they did to him. Now Matthew tells us that the disciples knew, they understood that he was talking about John the Baptist, who came in the spirit of Elijah, and he was murdered by Herod. The entire thrust of chapter 8, chapter 9 of Mark, to this point has been, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the chosen one. The king and his kingdom are here, but not yet. Not yet in fullness. He must suffer first. And you know, it wasn't until after that Jesus was raised that his disciples started really putting all the pieces together, was it? You see, we have the benefit of looking at this 2,000 years later. They didn't. And what they struggled with most was the idea that their Messiah must suffer before coming in glory. And friends, don't we also struggle with that truth today? That suffering precedes glory. We want the glory. We want it now. Jesus says, no, that's not the way it works. This has been the experience of God's people in the Bible from cover to cover. The Apostle Peter says this to the suffering Christians that he is writing to. 1 Peter 5, beginning somewhere in the middle of verse number 9. Peter says, Know that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 
Friends, it doesn't matter what the American dream promises if you work hard. It doesn't matter what the politicians promise if you vote for them. Or what the preacher on TV promises if you send them money. Don't believe any of that. Because Scripture repeatedly sets the expectation that hardship, that suffering is the normative experience of the Christian life. And that glory awaits those who endure. Romans eight seventeen, this is the Apostle Paul, he says this, We are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. The only way to glory is through suffering. But make no mistake, friends, we cannot lose sight of that future glory. The very next verse in Romans 8, verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. So what do we do? We keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. We cannot be disheartened because His plan for our lives includes suffering. The glory will come if we endure, and we can endure because Christ has already endured for us. Yeah. He endured the humiliation of His incarnation. We celebrate Christmas every year. A little sweet baby in the manger. That was humiliating for the eternal Son of God to wrap Himself in human flesh. But He endured it. God who became man, He endured the temptations of human life, earning for us a righteousness that would be accounted to those who don't deserve it. He endured the suffering of the cross, bearing the holy, hot wrath of God the Father for sins that did not belong to Him, for sins that were not His own. It was our sins that He was being punished for on Calvary. It was our self-righteousness that He was being punished for on Calvary. He endured death, but friends, He was raised in glory. And He will return in glory. (laughs) And this is a preview. He will return in glory to reign with all those who have turned away from their sin and have put their trust in Him. And if you are here today, if you have never done that, I don't make any assumptions. I know I'm speaking to mostly the same people every week. I don't make assumptions. We've got young people in here. We've got old people in here. And everything in between. If you are here or are watching and you have never put your faith in Christ, there's room at the cross for you today. (laughs) Can I get a witness? And for those of us who do know the Lord, we know Him as Savior. Our hearts, 
Friends, our hearts are to be about to burst <laughs> as we have encountered Christ in His transfigured glory. You know, we didn't see it as they saw it on the mountain, but we see it by faith. In splendor and brilliance. We should be moved this morning. So, friends, let's respond to His greatness with our highest praise. Let's pray.